Well, good morning, all. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series through Exodus. So if you would turn with me uh, to Exodus chapter 2, we'll be picking up in verse 11. So Exodus 2, beginning in verse 11, and we'll finish at 20, uh, verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on them, looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of uh, the accounts of all of your work and your people across history that all builds to the coming of Christ. Thank you that you have brought us into your family and into the people of God. And help us uh, through this passage to see how we, how we can identify with you and identify with your people. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just recently watched a show called The Rings of Power. It takes place in the world of the Lord of the Rings, uh, by Tolkien, and in that world, it's, uh, there's a stark battle and war between good and evil. And in one of the episodes of this show, there was this village of, of simple people, farmers, and they were surrounded by all the armies and the forces of evil. And the evil, wicked general of the armies uh, says uh, to the village, join us and swear allegiance to our cause, or else you'll be destroyed. And so there's a discussion in the village of what, what do we do? And one of the leaders in the village steps forward and she says, we cannot join the forces of evil. We must stand for what is right. Step forward and join me. And whatever happens, happens, but we will not join uh, with darkness. Well, as she speaks, uh, another person stands up and speaks up and says, no, let us join with the evil Uh, Join with the evil forces, uh, for else we will be destroyed. And so he entices people to join with the enemy. 
And you've probably seen the same scene in a number of shows where in the face of certain defeat, someone steps forward, stands up and says, who will step over and join me? And a line is drawn in the sand and at first no one steps forward and then one person raises their hand and steps across the line and then another and another and then you have two parties. Those who are going to do what is right no matter the sacrifice and then those who are going to capitulate Um, Or maybe you've seen this in a family sitcom where the father says, uh, who wants cake? And one of the children says, no, I want ice cream. And then the battle lines are drawn, the cake in the ice cream crowd. Well, usually we identify with a number of different groups and communities that are all good to be a part of. Uh, God has created us to be in community, and he's given us the blessing of having many different uh, social circles and social bonds that we share. Uh, we are part of families. We are members of our neighborhoods. We have coworkers at work that hopefully we have good relationship and collaboration with. We have friends at school. All these things are good. We even have sports teams and fan bases, whether we play sports or we have teams that we root for and have communities that are built around this. We see in all aspects of life that God has created us for community. When push, comes to sh- when push comes to shove, when the battle lines are drawn, who do you identify with? Who are your people? Well, in our passage today, we see Moses faced with this question. Who are his people? Who is he going to identify with? And we see that Moses chooses to join himself with God's people rather, with, rather than with the oppressors of God's people. And as a result, by putting himself in this position, he is forced to flee the palace, to flee Egypt. And yet, God remains faithful to him, and he remains faithful to the people of Israel. He will accomplish his plans in his own timing. So in this passage, we will see that we are called to identify with God's people Because God has identified himself with us. We are called to identify ourselves with God's people because God has identified himself with us. And we'll look at this in three people, uh, three points. God's people, God's timing, and our Savior. But first, let's just look at the context. Where we left off last week, Moses was a child. He had just been rescued as an infant in a basket in the reeds of the Nile, uh, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter out of the river, and she chose to adopt him and raise him as his own, as her own. This meant he became a prince of Egypt. He had all the perks of being in the royal family, living in the palace. Stephen in Acts 7.22 says that Moses was instructed in all, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses was given the best education as a thinker, a speaker, a writer. All the resources of the kingdom were at his fingertips. Uh, With his natural gifting and training, it seems that he had uh, made his name for himself. He was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, The magazines that you would have seen at the checkout tills would have had Moses' face on them and would have said, get an insider's look into uh, Egypt's bright and upcoming royal star. And that is what he was. The prestige and power he wielded might easily have enticed him to reject his people. After all, he had been adopted into Pharaoh's family. 
Why not continue as a member of this family where fate had, let, where fate had drawn him? Why not live as an Egyptian in luxury? Why not indulge on the fruits of his people's hard labor up in the palace? I mean, if you get lucky and you find a lost wallet on the ground, why not keep it? But it wasn't luck that brought him to the palace. It was God's plan. And God, within his plan, had chosen to preserve Moses as his own and to preserve him for a certain task. And so this brings us to the start of our narrative where we see the, the man that Moses has grown up to be now about 40 years old, as Stephen says in Acts. So what is he going to do about the plight of the Hebrew people? Verse 11 says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looking on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice the repetition there. His people, his people. The author is signaling something about what Moses thought of these Hebrews. Now, as one in the palace, he might have associated himself as being one of the palace people. These are just lowly slaves. Why would I want to identify myself with them? That seems rather odd. That's somewhat contrary to human nature. If something nice falls in your lap, you tend to soak it up and reap the benefits, but not Moses. And why is this? How could this have come about? Well, remember that when he was rescued out of the reeds by Pharaoh's daughter, uh, she hired his mother to raise him. His, uh, his sister had been there watching, and Pharaoh's daughter was wondering who can be a wet nurse to raise him, and Moses' sister says, I know somebody. And so lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter hires Moses' biological mother to raise him. Now imagine that's quite a sweet deal for mothers. Uh, imagine getting paid to raise your own child. So it's quite a sweet deal. But even more than that, we see the Lord's hand of providence. Because if it had not been for Moses' mother, it's likely that Moses would not have learned anything about Yahweh, the one true God of Israel who had given promises to this people. So it's almost certainly the case that it was through his mother that he learned about God, learned about these promises, and learned about God's protection and future promises to this people, the Hebrew people. So it was through his mother, most likely, that God providentially preserved Moses and kept him as his own. So when Moses saw his people being, being burdened and being oppressed, he identified with them. In verse 11 says that one day he had had enough. Now we don't know how many, how many days he had gone out to inspect the kingdom, but on this particular day, he saw one of, one of the Egyptians beating one of his people. He saw their burdens and it says he, he saw them. Now, the word there does not mean simply to see with the eyes. It means that he actually was moved by their burdens. He was touched in his heart. You might even say he was, to turn the phrase, he was burdened along with them. And so what does he do when he sees this Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves? Well, he goes and he strikes him down. He kills him. Not thinking he'd been seen, he'd looked both directions, looked both ways, and then he struck, and he buried the body. 
Quite a stunning action for a prince to take. And what are we to make of this? Was this murder? Was this justice? Well, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't give an explicit answer to this. The Bible actually doesn't even particularly focus on this act of killing the Egyptian. Stephen in Act 7 says, in seeing one of the Hebrews being wronged, one of his people being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. We see that Moses' desire was to save the people of God. He had a real heart for their burdens, and he desired to do something. And yet, at this point in the story, had God called him to this? God had not. God had not yet given him a call. God had not commissioned him to be the mouthpiece or the hand of God. He had not commissioned him to be the savior of his people. And vengeance belongs to God, not to Moses. So while Moses was intending to act in love for his people, he was jumping the gun on God's revelation. He was acting where he had not been authorized. And we do this sometimes too, don't we? We've been given promises of a future when Christ will come to judge the earth. We've been given promises of a future when everything will be made right, when there will be no more suffering and no more sickness, when we will behold the Lord face to face, when there will be no more sin and when there will be no more suffering and oppression. That is our promise that we have for the future. But that is not as a promise for us now. And yet, how often can we sometimes think that if we only did the right things, if we, only, uh, if we only had the right influence on culture, if we only put the right people in office, then we could bring some of this future promise down to earth now. If the church only had enough influence, um, or perhaps on a personal level, perhaps you have wished for and harbored hatred towards the enemies of God's people. Perhaps there have been times when you've seen someone being oppressed and you actually desire for the death of that person who is causing the oppression, which Christ says to hate another person in your heart, even your enemy, is to murder them. Do you rejoice or wish for the death and the downfall of the ungodly? Well, in this age... We must identify with Christ, who loved his enemies, who suffered unto death. This is the age that we live in now. We are not yet at the point where God is bringing judgment and final salvation from this world for us. God has not rescued us from this world yet. And so similarly, Moses is in this place. God had not rescued his people out or commissioned that. So he was actually out of place to take up matters into his own hands without waiting for the revelation and promise of God. So let's take this to heart, that we may not sin against the Lord. And we see that Moses' plan actually backfires here for word spreads, even all the way up to Pharaoh, that he had killed an Egyptian. Moses is forced to flee Israel as an exile The magazines now read, Scandal in the palace. Prince leaves Egypt, gives up title to start new life in a foreign land. 
Well, despite killing an Egyptian, the interesting part and the thing that we see in the New Testament, how it interprets this, is again, the focus is not on Moses having victory over the Egyptian. The focus is on his passive suffering with his people. Hebrews eleven twenty four to 27 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And why? It says, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The author of Hebrews identifies Moses' choice to join his people in mistreatment as joining himself to Christ. Do you see that? It says that he chose to be mistreated with, mistreated with the people of God. He considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. These are in parallel. And where it says the reproach of Christ, what the author of Hebrew means And what our translations mean is that it was the reproach that he received by being associated with Christ. It was the hatred and the despising that he received by belonging to Christ and belonging to his people. This is what Moses counted as greater wealth than all the pleasures of Egypt. We see here already in the book of Hebrews and foreshadowed and shown in in, in shadowy types in the people of Israel, the intimate union of Christ with his people. Ephesians gives the picture of Christ being the head of his body. It is one organism, so to speak. Christ has united himself to his body, his people, and so his people are united to him and to one another. And so when Moses decided to join with his people, to put in his lot with the people of God, In their mistreatment, trusting in God's promises, he was thereby uniting himself through faith to Christ. Isn't that an amazing, amazing truth? By faith, Moses chose to be in Christ's body rather than in the family of Pharaoh, even though it meant sharing passively in the sufferings of Christ. And it's interesting that that is what the New Testament points out and celebrates Moses for. It was not his faith to try and start a revolution for the Lord, an uprising of the Hebrews against Pharaoh. It was not carrying out vengeance. It was that he identified with the people and submitted to suffering for Christ's sake. Do you identify with the people of God, with the body of Christ? Do you love his people? Are you moved when you see the burdens and sufferings of one another? When you see the oppression due to sin, suffering, when you see one another, others experience the reproach of Christ, do you identify with them? Or when it gets difficult, a difficult in the body of Christ, do you check out? Do you take a step back? Saying this is this is too much. The reproach of Christ is not worth it. When you receive reproach from your coworkers, or from friends or family. When you receive reproach for belonging to Christ and to his people, um, do you 
Are you tempted to cross the line, to capitulate, to not step forward as God's, but to stay with, with those who approve of sin? Moses considered the hatred of the world a reward, greater than all the treasure of Egypt. It's quite a statement. The reproach of Christ is reward because it means that you are Christ's. It means you belong to the people of promise. And it may not seem yet like those promises have manifested, but we know, and we've seen already in Genesis and now up to through Exodus and even in Moses' life thus far, that he has been faithful. And just as Moses knew he was faithful and just as God was faithful to him, so we know that he will be faithful to us. But he hasn't received the promise yet. He hasn't received the promise of the exodus of the people of God returning the promised land. And so this brings us to God's timing. The next point, God's timing. So we saw that Moses' plan of salvation backfires and dead ends. For not only does Pharaoh find out, but even the day after, Moses goes out again to inspect and see how things are going with his people. And what does he find? He finds one of the Hebrews wrongly beating up another fellow Hebrew. And the word here for, uh, for struggling that's translated as struggling is the same word used for what the Egyptian was doing the previous day. Yesterday, the Egyptian was beating up on a Hebrew, and today, it's a Hebrew who's beating up another Hebrew. And so Moses steps in to make peace. He comes to put the person in wrong in his place and to create, uh, create reconciliation here. But what response does he get? He's ridiculed. The person that is in the wrong says, how dare you? And consider the gall of this, this man. For not only is Moses stepping in to actually help, who's evidently uh, showing kindness to them. Second, if the guy, as the guy reveals, he has seen Moses step up for the Hebrew the day before to stand up for the oppressed. But not only that, consider the gall of this, that he is speaking to a prince of Egypt who most certainly could have had him severely punished, if not killed, right on the spot like that. And yet he speaks this way to someone who is on his side. And he even accuses Moses of murdering the Egyptian and flippantly asks him, so what, are you going to do the same to me? What we see here foreshadowed Israel's constant wickedness to God. This is a foreshadowing of what would come in the coming years, decades, centuries, all the way up finally to Christ, that Israel would consistently reject God's loving kindness and his graciousness. God, Israel would consistently turn away from the salvation that they had received, the salvation that was extended through the prophets, through Moses, and then later through Christ. And that is the parallel that Stephen draws in Act 7. He says, you rejected Moses, who had come thinking that he was going to bring God's salvation, and you rejected him. So combined with Pharaoh finding out, and now Israel's refusal to recognize Moses' authority, uh, we see that the evidence is piling up that this is simply not the timing. God has not called Moses to this task. And so what does Moses do? Moses flees, and he goes into exile. And Moses comes across an unlikely, unlikely family. 
A lot of meetings in Scripture happen at wells. And this is no different. Sitting at the well, who should come but seven sisters with their flocks, simply wanting to come and give their flocks some drink. But while they're there, a a band of shepherds comes, and they oppress them. They say, no, you're not going to get water. We're going to feed and water our, our flocks first, and you wait in line. Even though you're her first, we're going to drive you out. Well, Moses steps up again. We see his heart for the oppressed, the oppressed, and he see his heart for justice and his, his tender conscience to, conscience to these things. And what does he do? He drives them out. And what he was probably utilizing was his military training that he received as an Egyptian uh, prince. They would have received training in arms and weaponry. And with these skills, he was able to drive out the shepherds, and he saved these, these sisters. And so what do they do? They go back, we see, and they take a report to their father, who is a priest of Midian. And he says, well, why are you back so early? Obviously, this was something that had happened regularly. They were often delayed by these shepherds. And they say, oh, the shepherds came again. But there was this man, an Egyptian, who saved us. And the priest of Midian says, well, how could you have left an eligible bachelor there sitting all alone by the well? Bring him back and have bread. And then sure enough, just a few verses later, Moses is married to Zipporah, his daughter. And what's interesting is that as it happened, the Lord had brought Moses in connection with quite an unlikely family. For as I mentioned, this was the priest of Midian. Now, it seems from the text that he was, in fact, a worshiper of the one true God. Though we do see at points later in in Exodus that this worship, this true worship, was mingled with impurity. There was confusion with with pagan practices. And yet, he seems to have had uh, revelation and, and knowledge of the one true God. This would have been someone similar to Melchizedek, Uh, In the sense that the knowledge of the one true God had been passed down from generations, probably unbroken from Noah. As we know, God's people have always been. There's never been a time where God's people was not. And so this was a case of someone who, who is a servant of the Lord. And when he finds out what Moses had done, he invites him and welcomes him into the family. And and further evidence of the fact that this was a a God-fearing family is the fact that Moses joined himself and identified himself with this family. He married into the family, something he would not have done if this had been a pagan, idol-worshipping family. Even here we see God's tender providence in in growing Moses' faith in this time and preparing him uh, to be the, the savior that he would be. And in verse 22, uh, they do have a child, and Moses names his son Gershom. And the word means to be thrust out of the country, to be in exile. But it's also a pun because Gur and Sham mean an alien there. So you've got the word meaning thrust out and exiled, but also means, well, I was an alien there. So where was it that, that Moses was an alien from? Well, it's not Midian. He's speaking of Egypt. He was an alien in Egypt. So here he finds out in Midian, 
he comes to a greater realization that he belongs in the promised land. This is the ultimate destination for the people of Israel. And what a blessing it is to call ourselves exiles. It's an interesting thing to consider that Moses was in this place and he he named his child Exile. Not a very nice name. And yet, if you think about it, what a blessing to call ourselves exiles when we live in a place of so much evil and suffering and sin. How sad would it be if we had to call this our home? How sad would it be if the people of Israel, if Moses had to call the opulence of Pharaoh's house and the sins and pleasures their home? How sad would it have been if he had to call living under the foot of the Egyptians home? So in a sense, this was a a declaration of hope and faith and joy in the promises of God. But in the meantime, he waits. He spends 40 years in Midian, 40 years with Jethro the priest. And for God's people in the Old Testament, all they could do was wait for God's revelation. And although we wait for Christ to return, we still wait for the final revealing of the Son of Man coming back in glory We have received, as Hebrews says, the full revelation of God's plan in Christ. We know clearly in a way that Moses only saw dimly through a glass the fact that we are exiles. And we know what we are waiting for, the return of Christ in the coming home. Well, later in the chapter, beyond beyond our passage today in verse 25, it says... God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Immediately after that, God called Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. It's an interesting parallel. We saw at the beginning of this passage that Moses saw. He saw the people and their burdens. And already we see the work of God uh, in his heart to identify with his people. And now at the end of this passage, we see Finally, that now God sees and God knew. And after that is when he commissions Moses to go and be a savior to his people. Further evidence that God has not done so to this point. But in this time, this 40-year period, God is preparing him. This Moses, Stephen says, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now, this is what's coming, but it took 40 years in the land of Midian, 40 years of waiting, of growing, of being trained up by the Lord through sanctification to reach that point. And we see this pattern of Moses finally revealed in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which brings us to our third point, our Savior. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, that it was when the fullness that was in the fullness of time that Christ came. Many centuries and millennia had passed since the creation of the world, since God's call to Abraham, since the formation of Israel, since all the prophecies of Jesus. All this time, and then finally, God's plan, his exodus of his people to bring them out of his sin, was finally executed in Christ in the fullness of time. 
In Matthew 4, we notice, we see that Jesus is, even before he, he begins his ministry, he goes through a time of testing, of confirmation. He's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days. For 40 days he is in the wilderness. And there Satan tempts him with all the kingdoms of the world. See, these kingdoms belonged to the Son of God with respect to his divinity. But with respect to his humanity, the Son of Man had not yet come into possession of these kingdoms. He would not until he had gone through suffering, until he had gone to the point of death on the cross, until he had been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Yet Satan offered all these pleasures and the prestige of the kingdoms then and there. And what did he do? Jesus chose not to take them. He refused to align himself with Satan. And he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But who did he align with rather than with Satan? Yes, he aligned with God's plan, but he actually identified himself with you. He chose not to take the path of glorification immediately. He chose to take the path of suffering. And why? He chose to identify with himself so that he could save you, so that he could be mistreated with you, so that he could experience the pains of suffering and sin, could experience the oppression of sin. And he did all of that in complete perfection, sinlessly. He did that so that he could draw you to himself. He did that, leaving heaven so that he could say, you are my people, so that he could make you his people. Even when we were not his people, for we were like the Egyptian, or excuse me, like the Hebrew, who Moses went to, who says, no, I don't want you. I want to do what I'm going to do, and how dare you come in and be an authority or ruler over me. That was us. We were in rebellion against the king saying, why should we listen to you? It was us who were dead in sin and lost in our trespasses. We had aligned with Satan against Christ. And yet Jesus became like us. And after these 40 days in the wilderness, he begins his ministry of exodus, his ministry of reconciliation, of drawing us out of our sin and misery into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of heaven, ultimately to the promised land, the new creation. Matthew makes a a strong point to make this connection between our Savior and Moses. Hebrews 2 says about Christ, Since therefore the children share in in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus identifies with you. He identified with the people of Israel and with Moses. But not only that, he identifies you with himself. He says, you are mine. You are mine. You are part of my body. And when you trust him, you join yourself to one another. One another, the church becomes your people. This is your 
ultimate family, the family of God. You are united by Christ, united to Christ by his spirit and by the confession of our faith that we share. But this doesn't mean that we have, this doesn't mean that we have all the promises of God yet. For right now, to be a part of Christ's body and to be part of one another means to share in his suffering. As First Peter says, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. You bear the reproach that comes from being his. But do not lose heart. For when you do bear this reproach, you can be assured that it is a stamp of God's approval on your life. It is a stamp that you belong to him. By suffering and through suffering for Christ's sake, the Spirit confirms you as belonging to Christ. But this also means that we must wait for Christ's return, for the end of our mistreatment, for the end of suffering, and for the end of even our sin. And even as Moses, we recognize that we don't belong here. We live by faith, submitting to mistreatment for Christ's sake. And yet we don't carry out vengeance. We wait on the Lord. We wait for his return. We wait when he will judge the world. And we wait when he will usher in the new creation. And so as we conclude and as we leave up, leave Moses in the desert to pick up next week, let's consider our own desert pilgrimage in, in this life. As we journey to heaven, as we wait, as the Lord sanctifies us in the community of believers. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says that, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us cast off the weight that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set. Because we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Like the village surrounded by the enemy, we are surrounded by sin and suffering, all the enticements of the world and the pressures to make us conform. In this village, in this episode, they thought this was going to be their last stand. They thought this was going to be it. But lo and behold, it wasn't. For an unexpected salvation came when an army of the forces of good came and drove off the forces of evil. And all of those in the village who had aligned themselves with evil, thinking that they would gain victory and life and pleasure, they were destroyed. Well, you can be confident that Christ, who once did endure the cross and who endured the shame and the reproach of men, he now sits in victory over death, and he will come back in victory. And he will save each one of us and snatch us from the clutches of evil. Just as he preserved Moses, as he preserved Daniel in the lion's den, as he preserved Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the, in the furnace, and as he's preserved every one of the saints, every one of the saints in all of history. So let us, like Moses, Walk the path of Jesus, the path of reproach, of rejection, the path of death, knowing that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who have done so before and whom God preserved until the very end. And he will do the same for you. Amen. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness in drawing us out of the waters, out of the waters of judgment that is reserved for sin. Thank you that you have released us from the bonds of our sin and misery, from our slavery to sin. But Lord, we are not free from the presence of sin and we're not free from the presence of suffering and we're not free from the, the enemies of you and your kingdom who seek to squash your church. And yet we know that we are called to love our enemies. Even as Jesus loved us through death and mistreatment on the cross, so let us walk the path of the cross and let us wait humbly in faith for the final revealing of your salvation when you will draw us out of this world into the promised land. And it's that hope that we look to. And we have that hope in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.